Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. A few years ago, I bought a tool called a table saw. And it was my first time to own and operate a table saw. And before I cut a single piece of wood on that table saw, uh, I went to a place I call YouTube University. And I watched as many safety videos as I could find about how to operate a table saw. I'm fond of my fingers. I want to keep my fingers. And so I watched video after video after video. I didn't jump straight into turning on the saw. I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing. A lot of these videos had the word warning in the headline. And some of them were hard to watch. A few of them started with uh, the guy presenting, and he has his hand wrapped in a bandage. Dude had had a mistake, had an accident, been to the doctor already, came back, and the first thing he did was hit record with his good hand to tell people like me, here's what you should not do uh, when you're cutting wood on your table saw. Uh, I learned a lot from those videos, uh, and I'm happy to say that today I'm a woodworking hobbyist with ten fingers, and I hope to keep it that way. Now, warnings are a necessary part of life. We need them in all manners of things, right? We need warnings for driving. We need warnings when cooking. We need warnings for taking medicine, for all kinds of situations. And sometimes in our Bible reading, we come across warnings there as well. Now, no one really loves a Bible warning. In fact, we may bristle a bit when we come across these passages and stories that are blatant warnings to us. It it seems better for us when the Bible is just sugar and spice and everything nice. Uh, So no one really loves, loves, loves warning passages, uh, but I would argue they are an incredible gift of grace from God. And that's what Daniel chapter 5 is to us. It's a gracious warning that's meant to keep us from destruction. I didn't get angry at a single woodworker video that told me, be careful. I was grateful for that warning. And we need to approach Daniel chapter 5 with the same sort of openness and gratitude this morning. Daniel 5 is a warning about pride. It'll do worse than cut off a finger. It will cut out your soul. Pride is a subject we've confronted previously in our study of Daniel. In chapter 4, just the previous chapter, we were there in early December. uh, We saw pride on display in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And now in chapter 5, we see pride on display in the life of a different king. There are a lot of similarities between chapters 4 and 5, and and there's one common link between them uh, just right off the bat. If you look at the very last line of chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, and look at what he says. He says, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. We know that to be true because we've studied Nebuchadnezzar's story, and chapter 4 is the story of his humbling and then his exalting of God. Chapter 5 is a similar story of a king who's prideful and is humbled. So both chapters have these commonalities. They have kings, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, Belshazzar in chapter 5. Both kings are prideful. Both kings receive messages from God. Those messages delivered through Daniel. But here's the big difference between the two kings. Nebuchadnezzar repents and turns to God in faith. But Belshazzar meets with God's immediate judgment. So we've got a warning passage on our hands today, and my goal with this text is to warn you of the danger of pride. 
And I want to call you to a humble life with our God. I want to do this by showing you three dangers of pride in this text. But before we read chapter 5, let me set the scene for you historically. Uh, from the end of chapter 4 to the start of chapter 5, is the, uh, they're separated by multiple decades, at least 20 years between the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5. At least 20 years, at least five different kings. So the end of chapter 4 is the last we hear from Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and then after him, history tells us there are a number of kings that follow uh, as successors to the throne. None of those kings are godly men. They're Babylonian, they're pagan, they're wretched. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the throne is taken by force on multiple different occasions. It's just a, a nightmare of, of a kingdom. But when we get to chapter 5, a man named Belshazzar sits on the throne. Belshazzar is not the outright king Uh, He is a co-regent. His dad is the king of Babylon at this time, but his dad, for whatever reason, is spending uh, many years away from the kingdom. A period of about 10 years, uh, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, is away from the kingdom. And in his absence, Belshazzar is co-regent. He's the acting king. Belshazzar is not, we don't think he's a genetic ancestor of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, There's a place in the lineage where the throne is usurped by force before Belshazzar. And so the person who would take the throne then likely was not a relative uh, or a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar's. Uh, But still, because he holds the throne that Nebuchadnezzar once held, he's viewed in ways as a son to a father. It's not genetics that links them, it's the position that links them. And so when we step into chapter 5, Daniel is no longer a boy, no longer a teenager. He's now a man with a lot of wrinkles, and he's seen kings come and go. And we see his wisdom from the Lord on display again in this story. So I want to show you three dangers of pride. See if you can find pride on display in this text as we read. Let's read together Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says this, King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the kings and his nobles, wives and concubines, could drink from them. And so they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale, and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, The queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. 
In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor the king brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God gave sovereignty Greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys and was fed grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Many means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. When's the last time you read that through start to finish? It's, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and the storyteller is so vivid in the details that he gives us. And I wonder, did you see pride on display in this story? Certainly you did. And so this is a warning for us to learn from, a warning about pride. And let me show you three clear dangers of pride in this account. The first danger of pride is this. Pride destroys our relationships. It is a relationship killer. 
in just the first four verses of this story, we see the destructive power of pride on full display. What looks like Belshazzar living his best life is actually Belshazzar uh, destroying everything around him. Uh, so what are we talking about when we talk about pride? Let's just, let me give you a, a quick working definition that's going to guide us for the morning. So pride is the stubborn refusal to let God be God. It's the stubborn refusal to let God be God. And along with that refusal comes the ambition to take God's place. It's the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. And the tricky thing about it is it can be overt, as in Belshazzar's case, or it can be much more subtle, but no less insidious. It's the stubborn refusal to let God be God. And when we live that way, with pride uh, out front guiding us in the decisions we make and the way we live, well, it it takes a toll on every relationship in our lives. First of all, in this story, we can see how pride destroys our relationship with God. It's very clear that Belshazzar's relationship with Yahweh is non-existent, totally non-existent. And his pride is the driving force behind that. Uh, in this scene, it's, they're having a big feast. It's party time. Wine is flowing. Everyone is drinking. It's total debauchery. And then Belshazzar in his drunkenness has these trophies from the Jerusalem temple brought in. And these once sacred vessels now become vessels of further debauchery as Belshazzar and his people drink from them. In doing so, Belshazzar is making a statement about the God represented by these vessels. He's saying that this God really is no God at all. I mean, look, we, my predecessor, conquered him. These are our trophies from his temple. If he was any real God or had any real power, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And so out of supreme disrespect, disbelief, total arrogance... He takes these things that belong to Yahweh and use them to advance his own sin. It's clear that Belshazzar has a God. I mean, just down the street from his temple is a temple to their local God named Marduk. But make no mistake, Marduk is not really Belshazzar's God. He is a God unto himself. And when he brings his people in to drink from these vessels, he's bringing them in to worship him and his greatness. He has a throne and he has power, and he has fame, and he has wealth, and he has wives and concubines and nobles. He has everything that he wants. He has reason to think that he's a big deal. Belshazzar is pride personified. And in this we see a totally shattered and shredded relationship with Yahweh. There is not one. Now, not only does pride destroy a relationship with God in the story, but it destroys every relationship around us. And again, Belshazzar's relationships bear evidence of that. You see, it wasn't enough for Belshazzar himself to take part in this sacrilegious display, but he invites everyone around him into the sin with him. He brings all of them into his self-worship, his idolatry, and uh, his sacrilege of the things of God. Now, it's unlikely that his people needed much, much convincing. They've lived in this sort of environment for many, many years. But still, this display has come a long way from Nebuchadnezzar, who in chapter 4 tells the people around him how great are God's miracles and how mighty are his wonders. Nebuchadnezzar called people to honor 
the Lord. Belshazzar gathers people to defame the Lord. No one in this story benefits from Belshazzar's pride. And you and I know the end of the story already. I mean, we're just looking in the first few verses, but we know the end of the story and the blast radius caused by Belshazzar's pride is kingdom-wide. No one benefits from his arrogance and from his pride against God. Now, here's where you and I need to utilize caution. We might be inclined to look at Belshazzar and his antics as so far beyond us. And it's true that perhaps we have not been as outrageous as Belshazzar in the exercise of our pride, but we make a huge mistake if we pretend like we don't have Belshazzar-shaped hearts inside of us. That would be pride out front that says, I'm not like that guy. Think about it this way. Belshazzar sells out Yahweh for a kingdom and for a throne and for wealth and for wives and concubines and nobles and for an army and for glory for himself. I sold out God for so much less. I'm not better than Belshazzar I'm worse. All of us, worse. We've sold our souls for such tiny gods, such puny glories. So this isn't a story about just some outrageous one-time offender. This is a story about me. And look, my pride does the same damage that his does. It damages my relationship with God, and it does damage to the people around me. Jesus was once asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? Out of hundreds of commandments in the Bible, what's the greatest one? Jesus said, uh, the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. This singular window is the way through which we view, interpret, apply all of God's word to our lives. The love of God and the love of our neighbor. But when I'm sick with pride, I cannot love God. When I expect him to serve me rather than live my life to serve him, I cannot love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. If I act as if I'm God and he's not, I need to be served, not him. I can't live my life to bring him glory. And this is a battle that's especially difficult for Christians. I mean, for sure, we, we see pride in Belshazzar who is completely gone to Yahweh, totally lost. And you know what? We would almost expect that. But Christians also, those who have walked with God even for years, we got to hear the warning given to us in this chapter It's the same warning that Jesus gives to us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus said this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Isn't that amazing to think about? I can practice righteousness in such a way that it's actually not righteousness. I can do religious deeds in such a way that I'm glorifying myself and I will heap up for myself judgment because of the pride in my religious practice. 
He goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, so when you give to the poor, do so secretly so that your Father in heaven will see. And when you pray, don't pray in such a way as to be heard by others and to be seen by others. Pray so that your heavenly Father hears in secret and he'll reward you. So what I need everyone here to do is to cover your eyes for the rest of the service this morning (laughs) and good luck getting down the stairs on your own. It's right for us to gather publicly, to acknowledge our trust in God publicly through baptism, which we're going to do here in a little bit. I'm pumped about it. It's right for us to sing, to unite our voices together, but we do all of that to God, not to be heard or to be seen or to make much of ourselves. We do these things to honor and glorify God. So I can't love God properly whenever my heart is wrapped up in love for myself. I I sure can't love others the way I'm supposed to when I'm consumed by pride. Pride's a relationship killer. When pride rules my heart, I'm not going to put the the needs of others before myself. I'm going to insist on my own way. I will not see the image of God in people who are different from me. Where there is racism and prejudice and hatred and gossip and animosity of every kind, there is pride. Now, Personally, as for me, I wish pride were something that I could easily walk away from. There are many sins I do not struggle with, and it's easy for me to be distant from them. But my repentance from pride is proving to be lifelong and challenging. And so it's good for me, and maybe it's good for you as well, to look at Belshazzar deeply and slowly in order to understand the ongoing impact of pride in our lives. No one in my life will benefit from my prideful heart. I will not be a good husband. I will not be a good father. I won't be a good pastor or friend or neighbor. No one benefits from my pride, least of all me. It destroys our relationships with God and our relationships with each other. We have to hear this warning. The story continues from there with another warning to us about pride, and that's that our pride makes us indifferent to God's voice. Pride destroys our relationships. Second, it makes us indifferent to God's voice. Now, our storyteller in chapter 5 is just brilliant. The narrator gives us such vivid detail as we move from scene to scene. Uh, And so, during the drunken festivities, a hand appears and writes a message on the wall. Now notice our storyteller does not tell us what that message is. Not that it would do us any good anyways. We don't know what it says apart from Daniel's interpretation. So we don't know what's written on the wall. We just know a supernatural hand appears. A message is written in the wall visibly for everyone to see. And the response to that scene, not the message because the message is unknown, just the response to the scene was abject terror and chaos. And I love the way the writer describes, in particular, Belshazzar's response to the writing on the wall. Look at verse 6. It says, His face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. It's okay to giggle a little bit if you want it. Verse 6. If you don't have the same translation of the Bible, it may not say he soiled himself. It may say uh, his legs gave way or his legs began to quake, his limbs gave way. 
there are nerdy scholarly discussions about why it's translated one way versus the other. Regardless of what your translation says, here's the point that communicates the same main point regardless that he's struck with panic. And his panic is visible as he stands in a puddle of his own fears. Now, from this moment forward, we step into a really familiar scene for readers of the book of Daniel. The king has a message that he cannot understand. And so he calls in his magic men, his wise counselors, and he promises them rewards. You'll get money, we'll give you a new wardrobe, I'll give you a new job, if you'll just tell me what this means. And not one of his magic men could tell him what it meant. Surprise, right? We've seen this over and over again in the book of Daniel. And I love how the failure of the magic men only incites more chaos and more terror. Belshazzar is not in a good place at this point. That's when the queen mother comes in and she says, hey, let me tell you about Daniel. This is a job for Daniel. And she reminds Belshazzar about this Judean exile who used to be a counselor to Nebuchadnezzar and has the ability to interpret these things. So when the king summons Daniel, this conversation between Belshazzar and Daniel is a really pivotal moment. It's really the meat of the story. When Belshazzar speaks to Daniel, remember just prior to this, uh, he's gone pale. He's lost all color in his face due to the terror in front of him. Uh, He is quaking with fear. But now when he speaks to Daniel, I read contempt in Belshazzar's voice. Look at how he addresses Daniel in verse 13. It says, Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor the king brought from Judah? Now, that's a true statement. He is one of the Judean exiles brought in exile from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. But it's a really smarmy way to address a man who has held high positions in the kingdom and has been an advisor to kings. He reminds him of who he is at his most defeated. And I think the contempt just drips off the page as Belshazzar speaks to Daniel. He promises a reward to Daniel. If you'll tell me what this means, then I'll give you money and a new wardrobe and a new office in the kingdom. And I love Daniel's reply to that, verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. That's cold-blooded. Pretty awesome. Now, I don't think Daniel's trying to be smarmy back. That's not the kind of man Daniel is. I think Daniel is responding out of the knowledge of what this message on the wall means. He knows this is the last night of the Babylonian kingdom. What's the point of it? promotion in a new wardrobe and money when all this is getting ready to go to someone else. I don't want it and I don't need it. Now Daniel speaks for a large bulk of the story. Uh, The way it's split up is Daniel gets 12 verses. Now the first eight of those verses do not answer the question Belshazzar asks. Only the last four verses do. Belshazzar just wants to know, what's that say? That's all he wants to know. But Daniel isn't content to just tell him what that says. He's going to help him understand why the interpretation is so severe. 
It's not enough to just get the message. He has to understand why this message has shown up and what it means for him and for his kingdom. And so Daniel's speech begins, verse 22. I want you to look at verse 22 and 23 with me and hear the gravity in Daniel's voice. He says, you, the successor to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar, though you knew chapter 4, you've heard the story of what happened to him and how he was a reformed man when he humbled his heart before God. You knew all this, but you haven't humbled your heart. Verse 23, instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles' wives, concubines, drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. You've not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Look, Belshazzar's problem is not ignorance. He knows the story. His problem is arrogance. He's a prideful man to the very core of his being. He opposed the Lord of heaven, refused to acknowledge him. And Belshazzar's pride destroys his ability to hear the voice of God. Though he had heard the stories of Nebuchadnezzar, he did not respond to them with humility or worship as he should have. That's the big story here. That's the understand part of Daniel's message. King, the reason this message is on the wall is because of your prideful heart. You have not responded to God's voice as you should have. And because of that, here's the judgment. And he gives him the interpretation. In verse 26, your kingdom's coming to an end. In verse 27, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You are coming to an end. Verse 28, your kingdom's going to be split between the Medes and the Persians. Everything is finished. And how does the king respond? He gives him a wardrobe and he gives him money and he gives him an office. And continues forward in his pride and his arrogance. Look, when God's truth does not humble us or lead us to worship, then we are simply Belshazzar clones. Pride will dull our ears so that we don't hear God's call to faith. It will leave us so that we don't hear God's pleading to turn from our sin. It will leave us so that we don't hear God's encouragement to share the gospel. It will leave us so that we don't hear God's mandate to care for the hurting. If we don't hear God's voice, we will not turn to him. We will not turn to others. We won't. I think sometimes we have this idea that, look, I'll just, I'll just let my sin run amok until I get tired of it, and then I'll turn to God But listen, every repentance is a result of the kindness of God. He's the one that pricks our hearts. He's the one that lays conviction on us and turns us from our sin and destruction to himself. But if I am sick with my pride, I won't hear that voice when it comes calling. And if I look at the state of my world and I think, man, something's got to be better than this. Someone's got to do something about it. I won't hear the voice of God leading me to love my neighbor, to care for those who are hurting, to meet their needs, to give them gospel with my words and my actions. It's a strange thing to consider that Christians can gather often and open the Bible together and yet not hear the voice of God because of our pride. But that's the sad power of pride. It is so insidious and so effective. We've got to hear this warning well. 
one last danger of pride from this story is that pride faces God's judgment. It destroys relationships. It deadens us to the voice of God. And then it faces God's judgment. The events of the night unfold quickly. Daniel has delivered the prophetic word to the king. Here's what's coming. And then the first three words of verse 30 are just chilling. That very night. That very night, the king of the Chaldeans was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. The throne is done. The kingdom is done. A new king in a new kingdom now holds the property of Babylon under their control. The end. So we've been warned. God judges the pride of humanity with severity. What are we to do about it? The only help for Belshazzar in this story was a cast-off Jew whose God he despised. And the same is true for you as well. The only way heaven's help comes to prideful people is through a cast-off Jew, Jesus Christ, a crucified Messiah. And it's at the cross that Jesus faced the divine consequences for our pride. The true horror of pride is unleashed on Jesus as he hangs on that cross, mocked by Roman soldiers and Jewish spectators, even others being crucified along with him. Paul gives it this description in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Jesus humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. He humbled himself in order to eat the judgment required for our sin. And it's at the cross that Jesus defeats our pride and then shows us the way to live in true humility before God and before others. So if we've heard this warning correctly, we've got to humble ourselves and trust the one who gives the warning. The words of this teaching point, pride faces God's judgment, that's a truth that can be a promise to us as well. It can go from warning to promise if we recognize that God has judged our pride through the death of his son at the cross. It's not something that we would, uh, a truth that we would lament or feel helpless at. It's something that we would praise God for and humble ourselves in front of. God has indeed judged our pride. Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sin. And that shows how much God loves rebels like us, people with Belshazzar hearts and worse, that he would send his son to die for us so that you and I could know eternal life and eternal blessing so that God's judgment could be turned to God's smile on our souls. If we're going to be humble, we've, we've got to know what that looks like. Humility is acknowledging that as sinners, we depend on our Savior's grace. I'm a creature dependent on the created. I'm a sinner dependent on the Savior. I bring nothing to the table here except need and want and depravity. But I've got a God who is loving and kind and compassionate and merciful to sinners. And for that reason, I can bow before him and exalt him and live my life in a humble submission towards him. So this 
warning holds out a promise. Right? It, it was harsh judgment for Belshazzar. But it is a gift of grace to the reader to see this story and to know God has made another way for us. Jesus Christ is our hope, our humble Savior who rescues us from the penalty of pride and the sin of pride and shows us how to live in his humble way. When people walk with Jesus in humility and gather in his name to worship, it gives a distinct flavor to that church. Is there anything worse for the witness of the gospel than a prideful Christian or an arrogant church? I don't know that there is. It's one thing to be a church that wouldn't share the gospel. It's another thing to be a church that is detrimental to the cause of the gospel because of a prideful public witness. And so the church that lives together in humility before God, not, not perfection, but lives in humility before God and with God and with each other, can be certain of two things, I think. One, I think that church can be certain of backlash from those around them. The way of humility, the way of Christ, is not the way of our world. It's seen as weakness. It's seen as hatefulness at times. It's not valued. Humility is not a prize in the public arena today. And so Christians who would walk in humility must be prepared for others to not understand and to push back against it. But here's another certainty. The church that walks in humility with Christ is certain of being effective with the gospel. People don't come to faith in Jesus Christ because we yell louder than everyone else or because we destroy our adversaries. People come to faith when they encounter our humble Savior in our words and our deeds. That changes souls. Didn't that change your soul? When you heard the gospel in humility and gentleness delivered to you, that's how so many people have come to know Christ, is through humble servants who have shown them a humble Savior to lift them from their sin. So here's the warning in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. It's a warning about pride, and it tells us these things, that pride destroys relationships, dulls us to the voice of God, and it puts us in the crosshairs of God's judgment or God's promise. Pride is an evil enemy, but it is a vulnerable one. And so Daniel 5 leaves us with two options this morning. One option is to ignore the warning and walk in the way of Belshazzar. The other option is to hear the warning as a call of grace and to walk in the way of Jesus. Jesus himself outlined these two very options in a story he told in Luke chapter 18. We give this story the title, The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. And Jesus says these two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector, a professional religious person and a professional sinner. And they stand on the temple mount, and the Pharisee prayed this way about himself, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you. This one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
how will you go to your house today? May we go humble and justified. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Belshazzar's story, for what it reveals about us, what it teaches us about you, and the better way it calls us to. Um, so Lord, I pray that my friends here today would have received this warning well. Holy Spirit, help us to feel the weight of our pride, to evaluate ourselves honestly before you. And I pray that this story would lead to repentance and a trust in Christ that would lead us deeper in the humble life. Thank you for loving prideful people. If you didn't, I wouldn't be saved. Thank you for making a way for us so God, I pray this morning that, that the warning would be heard and that the promise of salvation would be received by friends that don't know you as their Savior yet. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would be the kind of people who would come humbly before you and beg for mercy, knowing that at the cross we've received it in full. Let us go justified in our humility, exalting you and not ourselves. Help us in our worship and in our ministries to be humble people in whom others see Jesus Christ on display. Lord, lead us in the way of humility. Give us patience and strength and endurance as we fight our ongoing battles with pride. But as we look to you and as we listen to you, change our hearts that we would be more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.